Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The Gospel according to St. John, the 11th chapter, verses 40 through 43. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. In Ezekiel chapter 37, the Old Testament lesson that we heard this morning, we saw the Spirit of the Lord yank Ezekiel once again and plop him in the middle of a grim, grim valley. And in this valley, Ezekiel seems to find himself <clears throat> excuse me, at the site of an ancient, massive battle. The valley is full of bones, we're told. And there are very many on the surface of the valley. But we get another detail about these bones. They're dry. Very dry, in fact. Later in the chapter, we learn these are the bones of the slain. And when they're reassembled and stood on their feet, they form an exceedingly great army. But when Ezekiel first arrives, he seems to have happened on the ruins of a catastrophe. None seem to have survived. No, not one. Standing in this sea of bones, I wonder if Ezekiel may have recalled Goliath's threat against the youngest son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, where Goliath is standing on the plain I always see in my mind. And he calls out, he sees little David, he says, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Scattering remains like those scattered bones was an ancient way of signaling the complete devastation of an opponent, that not even their bones would ever find rest. To bear witness before this calamity, Yahweh the God of Israel brings his prophet. Ezekiel had no idea that these bones would be his congregation. Son of man, Can these bones live? And poor Ezekiel, almost a thousand miles from home in distant Babylon, a priest with no temple, likely feeling a bit like a forgotten piece of dry bone himself, answers, O Lord God, you know. Beloved, whatever is happening in your life this morning, and whatever condition you find yourself on this fifth Sunday in Lent, whether in the spring of your life or its winter, whether in a season of violent change or relative stability, 
whether you are burning with spiritual thirst or honestly feel dead, you hardly feel anything at all, I invite you, would you please put a pause on whatever may be grabbing your attention this morning and join me in bearing witness to what God's breath can do as revealed in his holy scriptures this morning. Son of man, can these bones live? Oh Lord God, you know. When our, in our gospel passage this morning, John chapter 11, Martha of Bethany is actually having kind of a similar exchange as the one Ezekiel had. And in fact, with the same God. Only now, this God has joined himself to our human nature. Your brother will rise again, the Lord Jesus says. And dutiful, faithful Martha replies, I know. He will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I know. But Mary and Martha had both already tried to do what they could to avoid this conversation. In verse 3 of John 11, the sisters send word across the Jordan to the Messiah. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Lord, he whom you love is ill. In one of his homilies on the Gospel of John, St. Augustine reflects on Mary and Martha's simple prayer here. Lord, he whom you love is ill. And Augustine points out how they don't actually ask Jesus to come to Bethany, do they? They don't really ask him to do anything at all. Rather, knowing Jesus, they knew all that was necessary for their prayer was to let him know that the one he loves is ill. That was all they had to do. Beloved, all of Scripture is an incredible act of mercy. Just as it is by His Word that He created all things, and by the Word become flesh that all things will be made new, so also the words of God in Scripture are life and health and peace. We Anglicans tend to go on about how important Scripture is for us, don't we? But are we actually building habits of reading Scripture into our lives? Way back in 1547, so this has always been a problem, when Thomas Cranmer published a book of homilies meant to help catechize all of England, he began it with a homily he wrote entitled, a fruitful exhortation to the reading and knowledge of Holy Scripture. And in that homily, he wrote this, As drink is pleasant to them that be dry, and meat to them that be hungry, so is the reading, hearing, searching, and studying of Holy Scripture to them that be desirous to know God and to do His will those who be desirous to know God and to do His will. Now, these days, if you walk down the aisles of a grocery store, you are assaulted by all manner of health claims for the foods and drinks that stock the shelves. This juice has antioxidants. This snack is packed with B vitamins. This granola bar will supercharge your toddler's brain. 
As consumers, we so clearly understand, otherwise why would they mark them up like this? We so clearly understand the impact of how we feed our bodies. Beloved, why aren't we also concerned with how we feed our souls? Now, I don't mean to pile guilt on anyone. I would be first. But as someone who is slowly learning to taste and see that the Lord is good in both word and sacrament, I have to say, you this morning who are weary and heavy laden, I urge you, seek the face of Christ in the pages of Scripture, and He will give you rest. For example, Christ meets us in John chapter 11 this morning. St. John, the theologian, wrote these words, after all, that you might entrust yourself, heart and soul, to Jesus of Nazareth, that you might believe He is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Jesus is meeting us here. And when we encounter Him, we find He is apparently the kind of person who only needs to be told that the one he loves is ill. And that's all that needs to be said. Say less, as the kids say nowadays. Mary of Bethany, who sat at his feet as a disciple before her rabbi, Mary, who showed her devotion to the Savior by anointing him with that costly perfume from the alabaster jar, who, as we see later in the chapter, quietly waits to be summoned by the Savior, and then when summoned, comes at once and does what? Falls at his feet. This Mary knew all that was needed was to tell Jesus Lazarus was sick and he would take care of everything. It's funny, it's similar to how the Lord's mother, the Blessed Virgin, speaks to him at the wedding of Cana. Do you remember? She doesn't come up to Jesus and say, Son, please make more wine, or show them where to get wine. She just mentions in all humility, they have no wine. And then tells the servants, as if still speaking to each one of us, do whatever he tells you. Have you ever met someone like that? Someone so given to the love of another that the awareness of a need is all that is needed for action. Well, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. I'm here to tell you that Jesus of Nazareth was one such person. And of course, the person who, even when we did not ask for it, even when we did the opposite of ask for it and begged for destruction by the way we lived, he knew the need and so paid the cost for our sin. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He saw the disaster and rushed in to rescue, even to a violent death, to the tomb, down into the depths. This is the one Mary, Martha, and Lazarus loved and were loved by. I hope you love him too. So Jesus is made aware of the need, and he knows he will go to Bethany, though not quite yet. He stays where he is across the Jordan two more days. And it seems almost like the disciples were a little relieved, actually, that Jesus didn't take off to Bethany as soon as he got the word. Do you notice? Because when he suggests that they go back to Judea, 
crossing the Jordan. Bethany is near Jerusalem. It's in Judea. When he makes that suggestion, they feel compelled to remind him, Rabbi, there's still a warrant out for your arrest. People are trying to kill you. Maybe it's not a good idea to head back that way. And when he says he's going to wake Lazarus up, they say, oh, he's asleep. Oh, I'm sure he'll get better, Rabbi. We don't have to go to all that trouble. After all, Jesus had already said this illness does not lead to death, so what's the rush? But they don't understand. Lazarus is dead. And by every known criteria to humans, Lazarus of Bethany is now beyond saving. His situation has become as hopeless as an ocean of dry bones. Son of man, can these bones live? Oh, Lord God, you know. So they head to Bethany. Now, Bethany, if you peek at the maps in the back of your Bible, is right outside Jerusalem. It's only two miles off, verse 18 tells us. What's interesting about Bethany, I discovered, is some scholars suggest it might have been the home of several lepers. might have actually been like a leper colony. This is at least partially confirmed by Scripture when we read in Matthew chapter 26 or Mark 14 of Jesus' visit to Simon the leper in Bethany. And it just so happens at Simon's home is where Mary, the same sister of Lazarus, anoints Jesus with that pure nard. And if I can do something quite dangerous and speculate from the pulpit, I wonder if it might be no accident that in the parable in Luke 16, the poor man covered with sores, you remember, laid outside the rich man's gate, aching to be fed with the scraps from the rich man's table. I wonder if it's no accident that he's given the name Lazarus by the Lord Jesus. Perhaps Lazarus of Bethany, whose name means God is helped, by the way, perhaps Lazarus was another leper befriended by the Son of God. Perhaps the one whom Jesus loved had the COVID of the first century. Leprosy, the skin disease that left people completely cut off from their communities and the life of worship in the temple. It would not be surprising if a leper felt abandoned by both God and man, almost like a dead body given as food to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. But when Christ our God made himself touchable by taking on our flesh... He showed us what God is like and did not hesitate to lay his healing hands on the unclean. And what's amazing is that rather than being made unclean by the contact, he takes away their uncleanness. The infectious lepers become infected by the life of Christ, by the one who forgives all our sin and heals all our infirmities, who saves our life from the pit and crowns us with mercy and loving kindness. No wonder Jesus was so loved in Bethany. No wonder sinners wet his feet with their tears and dried them with their hair, for the one who is forgiven much loves much. I hope we will love him too. The one helped by God, Lazarus of Bethany, had been dead four days when the Messiah arrived. And without embalming or an airtight coffin, the body's decay would have been obvious at that point if the stone was removed from the tomb. 
In his sermon on this passage, Augustine again reflects on this and says, Sin is the death of the soul. Sin is the death of the soul. And he comments on the curious habit of humans that continues to this day, how we do everything in our power to avoid the unavoidable physical death, while not even the slightest effort is raised to avoid the avoidable, a spiritual death. Augustine says, man destined to die labors to avert his dying, and yet man destined to live forever labors not to cease from sinning. And St. Paul tells us, as we heard in our epistle reading, that in fact, we do the opposite. Not only does mankind not do anything to stop sinning, we pledge ourselves as bondservants to sin as our master. We read in verse 16 of Romans chapter 6, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. In the first century, a slave was a fixture of the household, not having any real existence to speak of outside of that master's will. Paul speaks of our relationship with either sin or righteousness in terms of the relationship between a slave and a master. And a relationship with either one is exclusive to the other. So if you're bound to sin, you're not particularly interested in what righteousness has to say. It's not your master. And conversely, if you're bound to righteousness, the demands of sin just have no claim on you. Now, in modern times, we like to think of ourselves as these free, rational agents. As moral beings, we assume we are capable of calmly considering each choice before us one at a time and making sober, deliberate decisions. But I can tell you from personal experience, there's a certain momentum to human behavior. Maybe some of you have experienced this. There's a certain inertia that comes with how we conduct, conduct ourselves from day to day. For example, in my house, my kids know, if we have pizza, you better get your plate quick. Okay, because dad is not one to let pizza lie around, okay? Wasn't raised that way, all right? When I bite into that first slice, more often than not, my flesh is already signed up for an extended contract, okay? I'm committed, I've bought in. The first slice may have been a conscious choice, but the second, third, fourth, etc., not so much. In the same way, if you train yourself in obedience to the demands of righteousness, you become inclined towards righteousness. By the grace of the Holy Spirit, bone connects to bone, and then sinews and tendons and muscles, and you begin to grow in righteousness. Paul, in, in our epistle reading, is trying to draw attention, our attention to the fact that whichever of the two wagons you hit yourself to, sin or righteousness, the two have very different destinations. And committing to either one or the other is like joining that household as a slave and binding yourself to the fate of that house. The household of sin is destined for death. The household of righteousness is destined for life. But what do you do, you might ask, if you find you are a slave to sin? How do you get your freedom? How does that happen? 
Well, Paul gives us the answer in Galatians 4. Adoption. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Christ wins our freedom. Through Christ, we are free to ignore the tyrannous demands of our old master, free to abandon the road to death. We read in Hebrews 2, <coughs> excuse me, verses 14 through 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to what? Lifelong slavery. When Martha told Jesus she knew her brother would rise again one day, she hadn't yet recognized the gravity of the situation, the weight of glory that stood before her in the person of Jesus Christ in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily. She hadn't yet realized everything was changing now that he was here. So in the face of death, with words as impossible and strange as prophesying to dry bones, the firstborn of all creation announced to Martha of Bethany, I am the resurrection and the life. The dawn from on high was breaking upon the lepers at Bethany to shine on those who are dwelling in darkness and in the shadow of death. <clears throat> but on his way through that valley, he had to witness the grief of his dear Mary. And seeing those tears, the scripture says he was deeply moved in his spirit. But the full force of the Greek might be better understood in saying he was furious. He was angry. Now, we know this wasn't the anger of man, for as James tells us, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This instead was perfect anger, holy anger. The anger of the one who told Abraham he would be a great nation, who told Moses that Israel would be free, who told David he would establish the kingdom of one from his body. But instead, what lies before him? A valley of bones. The one he loves is not only ill, the one he loves has died. And so the question remains, Son of Man, can these bones live? The Son of Man who is the Son of God asks, where have you laid him? It's the question he poses to every human being who will listen. For he is the propitiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And so each human being is his beloved. And he asks each one of us, where have you laid him? Where is the tomb in your own soul and heart? Show him the ruins. Point them out to him. Take him to the skeletons in the closet. Yes, it is liable to stink. It's probably been a while. But just like we ask our kids when they're crying inconsolably, where does it hurt? Show me where it hurts. (sighs) 
We must bring him and only him to the center of our desolation. We must confess our sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you see also that even though he knows what he's going to do, he knows what's going to happen, he still weeps. (laughs) Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. God's eyes are not dry at our grief. See how he loved him, they cried out, to which I add, see how he loves you. From the beginning he told us so we would know beforehand, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And so at verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? Death was standing over mankind as Goliath on that plain, defying Israel. And now David's son informs death that the battle is the Lord's, and death will be the one scattered as food for the birds and beasts. As he spoke over the face of the deep at creation, as Ezekiel prophesied over dry bones, so again all that is needed is the breath of his mouth to overwhelm his enemies. And with his word, he both names and commands us, Lazarus, come out. And so, knowing the voice of our shepherd, we follow him wherever he leads. To green pastures, still waters, and yes, even through the valley of the shadow of death. So yes, even though he has accomplished all, he is the one whose grace comes behind and before to bring us from death to life. He still gives the command, come out. In fact, when you think about it, almost all of his healings are marked by commands. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. Lazarus, come out. Faith in the Lord is demonstrated by our obedience, by which we take, we eat, the fruit that leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Son of man, can these bones live? O Lord God, you know. As we've all been at one time or another, you may be four days dead this morning, starting to smell in the back of some sealed cave. Well awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Keep your cold ears open for the call. Come out, and when you hear him, obey. For he has the words of eternal life. He will not abandon his beloved to corruption. 